Our Father, we thank you so much for uh, the opportunity this morning to again look at the beloved bride of your son, to look at the church. It's This is, I, I guess, one way, Lord, that we try to make sure that our wedding dress is clean, that our um, status before Christ as his bride is one that has been made pure and holy and obedient. Lord, that is our wish, that's our desire, and I pray that our little lessons uh, this morning would would further that cause. I pray that you would help us to submit to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and to be good church members so that we might contribute to a pure and holy bride. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, this is our third week on what is technically just the first lesson in ecclesiology, um, but I, it's so important I felt like we didn't need to worry about the calendar too, too much. Um, so this is a good chance to get ahead on your Bible reading if you want, but we will hit First uh, and Second Thessalonians next time. I believe that's what we're on. So we, uh, we've looked at ministries of the church, the future of the church, um, what the church is and so forth. And so now we come to church discipline and restoration. And this is, um, this is so key for us because this is one of the things that, that we define as really defining the church. Um, if somebody says, for example, well, I, I have a church. I just started one in my house. Um, from the Helvetic Confe- Confession, we would ask three questions. Uh, Helvetic Confession is not, it's not authoritative, but it is, it's useful. Um, we would ask three questions. Do you have... Uh, qualified leaders, um, do you uh, do you administer the ordinances uh, of baptism and and uh, the Lord's table, and do you practice church discipline, or would you, given the opportunity? Uh, ideally, what it would be is a is a local church that doesn't practice church discipline because their members are in such line with Christ that they never have to do that. Um, that would be ideal, but uh, the, I guess the question is, would you? So I want, to, um, I want to walk through this a little bit, and then I'm going to give you a supplemental little, little handout to make one point. I'm going to do this slide very quickly because my handout has all these, all these uh, references on them. This is, though, uh, really the most ignored area in church life. I, I really believe it is. I think this is one command of the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> that the modern evangelical church has just said, we've decided we don't believe this. That when, when Jesus uh, gave his command concerning church discipline and restoration, we're just not going to worry about it. Um, this is the old case of kind of selective, uh, selective choice in what scriptures you, you use. Um, some have said, well, uh, Jesus only talked about this in Matthew 18, and that was really before the institution of the church, and they've even brought up questions about does ecclesia really mean the church, or does it just mean gatherings of people who uh, believe in Jesus? And, and so, very quickly, uh, scriptural support is here, and I'm going to skip this right now because I, I'm going to go into more detail on that in a minute. But what is the purpose of church discipline? Well, there's several purposes. First of all, it's to glorify God and to do what He commands for the maintenance of His church. I mean, that's it. That, that's the main reason. It is for the glory of God. Uh, it is the classic parent reason because I what? Said so. That's it. That's, that's the whole reason. 
but it is also for restoration. The goal in every type of discipline, whether it's gentle correction, whether it's an admonition, whether it's a a stronger rebuke, or all the way to uh, disfellowshipping somebody, the goal is always restoration of the offender. That's that's what we hope. Um, There is never a time to say, the doors of the church are closed to you forever. That we're, we're not allowed to do that, okay? Um, the reality is, is that most people who undergo church discipline all the way to, to step four of, <clears throat> of uh, Matthew 18, the reality is, is that we have two things that hurt our cause in this. We have cars and we have multiple churches in town. Um, and so generally speaking, people uh, just go to a different church um, uh, I'll tell you though, my my commitment, anybody that I know is under church discipline, I will do everything in my power to find out where they're going to church. I will call I've called twenty five pastors before to say, Is so and so in your church? Because I would want somebody to do that for me. I don't want somebody under church discipline stepping foot in our doors without having dealt with their issues uh in the previous body. But it is for restoration and uh that, that's our hope. That's always our goal. You never see um, in Scripture um, the, the, any of the apostles saying they're out forever for good, um, with, with perhaps the exception of the person that is absolutely reviling the church and showing a hatred for all things Christian. Then they're, then they're out for good because they're not believers. Um, when we disfellowship somebody, we are not saying... We know for certain that this is an unbeliever. I don't have the ability to do that. We don't have that ability. We are saying, however, though, according to Matthew 18, they smell like a believer, talk like a believer, act like a believer, walk like a believer, speak like a believer. Um, how are we to treat them? As an unbeliever, rather. We treat them as an unbeliever. So we, I don't know what, where their heart is, but we know how we're to treat them. It also serves as a warning to Christians to see the dangers of habitual sin. Uh, I, I, there's nothing more there's nothing more powerful for the other children in your family to see one of them get spanked right um, it kind of when, when the oldest one especially the bully in the family uh, gets what's coming to him the other kids kind of fall in line uh, we we spanked every child less and less and less because the rumors spread <laughs> and that's uh, they, they knew what was what was coming so and then ultimately uh all of these, they're, they're good, but all of these two especially, these are human-centered reasons. But the best reason, I think, is to purify the body of Christ. We are his bride. And, and uh, somebody might say, well, uh, that situation was so tragic. It just ended so badly. I always say, well, no, it didn't because the body's been purified. And that is, that is a good thing. That's good. Um, what, what about that person? Really, what about Christ's bride? Let's have more concern for her than we do for the individual. Um, uh, the, the, the idea of church discipline is very much about the greater good. It is, it is that concept. Um, we, we're not trying to leave anybody behind. Um, at the same time, there is the idea of the greater good. So what is our attitude, though, in church discipline? There, there should be an attitude of love. There should be an attitude of love, um, that has to be that has to be checked and and when we say church discipline uh, going to to Matthew eighteen which has the basic four steps there's a 
There's there's a private correction, and then there is a correction with a, with a couple of people with you. Um, and, and Jesus says witnesses. He doesn't mean witnesses to the thing that you're accusing somebody of. It's witnesses of how you're going to act when you confront that person. Does that make sense? That that's you know, be there and help. Just help me make sure that I'm I'm acting in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And witness also how that person receives this. Uh, um, step three is is an announcement to the whole church asking to call them to repentance. Step four then is finally excommunication, if you want to call it that, or disfellowshipping. Um, we don't, we're not taking somebody's salvation away. We don't have that ability. Church membership and salvation aren't the same thing. Um, but there is, a, there is a time when we say, you know, you're causing so many problems. We have called the whole church to ask you to repent. You're not responding. So now we're, step four is basically saying, we're just informing you that they haven't repented. That's basically it. And at that point then, uh, uh, they're not welcome. Not until they repent because we have a purified body. Uh, and that's, that's key. But love uh, has to be the overriding factor, which means, which means, generally speaking, step one a private talk happens lovingly. It can happen over and over again. Um, in almost no case, one time in my entire ministry have we had to do something really, really quickly, and there were good reasons for it. Um, but almost in no case whatsoever should step one happen once, right? You don't, you don't say, uh, you, don't, you don't tell your wife, hey, I'm really, I don't like that you did this, and she didn't respond well, and the next day you bring five people from the church to talk to your wife. That's not going to help. Um, that's not going to be helpful. You're going to be patient and patient and patient. And um, there's another principle that goes with this too. Uh, love covers a multitude of what? Sin. Of sins. That doesn't mean you're not going to talk about sin, but it does mean you're going to make some judicious judgments about, uh, say that 10 times fast, uh, some judgments about, um, okay, is this, is this worth dying on? Is this a hill worth dying on? And I'll get to some detail on that on how to make that decision in a minute. Um, because this is, Church discipline starts with you. When somebody comes to the leaders of the church and says, did you know so-and-so is doing such-and-such and what are you going to do about it? We, all, we, we turn it right back. The mirror goes right back. Have you talked to that person? You're the one with the knowledge of it. Uh, no, that's your job. No, it's your job. It is, it is yours and you do it first. Um, and, and so our choice is very simple. Either go talk to them or be quiet. Those are the options that we have and, and, and deal with it that way. Uh, you have an attitude of humility. Why? Because you might be on the receiving end at one point. Um, you never know when. And, and I could be on the receiving end. You could be on the receiving end. I'm married. I'm on the receiving end all the time. And, and this is supposed to be our attitude, right? Of humility. Um, prayer. When, uh, when b- before you ever speak to somebody, Boy, you ought to have a sense of fear and trembling and prayerfulness. Um, do I really need to do this? What's my attitude doing this? Uh, Chuck Swindoll is famous for saying, if you like confronting people, you should never do it. Uh, I think that's, that's good colloquial wisdom there. Uh, a readiness to forgive. Are you prepared the minute, Luke 17, the person says, you're right, I repent, to say, I forgive you. And the, the slate is clean. And how many times in a day did Jesus say in Luke 17? If he comes to you seven times a day, I calculated that two and a half hours, every two and a half hours they've sinned against you. And uh, it, during the wake time, they've sinned against you. And 
uh, say I repent and you forgive them, two and a half hours later, they've done the same thing. So are you ready to forgive? And then with the exception of the divisive person of Titus 3 and the false teachers of 1 Timothy 1, and, and I'll show you a couple other, other exceptions probably, there's no call to be quick or hasty. Um, how many of you have been here at Grace when we have announced somebody's name in step 3 or 4? With one exception, uh, and that exception was because somebody was being physically abused um, in physical danger. With one exception, when we got to that point, sometimes we were six, eight, nine months into the process of trying to, to shepherd that person before you ever knew it. Um, so we, we work hard to not be quick or hasty. So that's, that's our attitude. Now, I want to take a little excursion here into, uh, in, into just to make kind of one point. So I have a supplemental handout on the exciting topic of church discipline. If I can just hand those to you. Oh, let me have one because I don't know what I'm teaching. Thank you. Um, I, I, sort of, uh, I sort of cast all this out of my heart last night um, because I, there, there's, a, there's an issue that, that people who are nervous about church discipline, um, they'll, they'll say, well, there isn't much support for it in the Bible. You know, I love it when people say that. Because that just sends me on a quest. But, but first of all, let's talk about this. And this is good in your own marriage as well. It's good in your, in your regular relationships, other relationships. Three criteria for church discipline at any level. There has to be observable sin. And there's nothing up here. I keep looking up there because that's a habit. Uh, there has to be observable sin. An outward manifestation um, that that uh, there's something you can see. We won't stand up in front of the church and say we're disciplining so-and-so because they have a prideful attitude. Now, that may be the case, but I can't observe a prideful attitude. I can't observe an arrogant heart. I can't observe uh, an internal sin. I can't observe lust. I can't observe an adulterous heart. And so we don't want to do that. Um, when I arrived at Grace, uh, uh, in the course of time, uh, I found out that somebody, a family, had been disciplined out of this church for pride and, and had had the door not opened for them to ever return. And so I contacted that family and, and apologized on behalf of the church, apologized on behalf of Christ, and said, if this makes any difference at all, um, we consider that your discipline was illegitimate, inappropriate, unbiblical, and we want to ask for your forgiveness. Uh, I got like a 25-page letter back from that family that was literally had tear stains on it. Um, so we don't discipline for things you can't see. It better be provable. Um, otherwise, what do you have? Uh, I know of a church where uh, the pastor preached a long series on church discipline. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. But everybody got so excited to confront everybody's sin uh, because of that, that it got to be a really ungracious place to be. Um, and, uh, and there was a phrase that became famous there. Um, boy, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really down. Well, that means you're not trusting the Lord. You deserve hell anyway. That, everybody was saying that you deserve hell anyway. Well, that's true, but how about holding my hand and weep with those who weep? Um, so it has to be observable sin. By the way, here's what I pray when I suspect and when the leadership or anybody comes to me and we, we suspect there's something going on, we ask for an outward manifestation. 
That's what we ask for. You know why? Because Mark 7, 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. The heart problem will manifest itself. And heart problems are just as, just as cataclysmic to the church as outward behaviors um, because it's, it's lowering the overall sanctification of the church. And so um, we ask for either repentance or for an outward manifestation that we can do something with. Um, and that way we have a chance to purify the body. So that's the first criteria is observable sin. The second one is it has to be serious sin. Now, I, I know when you use that phrase, it, it makes everybody nervous because, well, all sin is serious. One sin committed at the age of three is enough to condemn you to hell. That, that is a biblical fact. Um, James 2.10, if you have transgressed one law, you are guilty of them all because the same God who made one uh, made all of them. Same God who said don't murder, said don't commit adultery, and so forth. Uh, so when I say serious sin, what I'm talking about specifically is sin in which there are continuing and major consequences for that person or for others. Uh, when when uh, a man says, I'm, I'm struggling with pornography, are there consequences for that person? Yes. Are there consequences for his family? Yes. But that brings us to our third criteria, unrepentant sin. It is, is a porn problem observable? If you get caught, Yes. Is it serious? Yes. Okay. Well, but is it is it unrepentant? If that person saying, "I, man, I don't think I'm ever going to figure this out," well, then what do we do? That's called discipleship, not discipline. We love them and we cherish them and we walk alongside them and we we weep with them. Um, I, in my office, I've had people in my office just just bawling to the point of of physical convulsions over sin that they can't stop. That's not the person to discipline. That's the person to hug and to love and to embrace and say, let's, let's pray for tomorrow to be better. Let's pray for the Lord's grace. Let's pray for your sin to decrease a little bit. Let's pray for some progress. When somebody says, man, I'm, I'm drinking like a fire hose and I can't stop. Um, okay, well, what do we do? Well, let's try and, let's try and reduce it. Let's try and, work, and let's ask the Lord to help. And to be to be gracious to you, and let's fight this. It's what the Puritans used to call the mortification of sin. It's the idea of killing it, of of working on it. That's not the person to discipline. That's the person to love and to cherish. And if we're honest, all of us are in that camp in one degree or another, right? So you have to have the unrepentant piece. The unrepentant piece is a rebellious attitude of a refusal to let go of this sin. And I'll give you, uh, I won't name any names, you, some of you will know, but I, I, I think it's a worthy example. Um, <clears throat> on at least two different occasions in this church, um, I have had occasion to confront a woman for adultery. On one occasion, that woman nearly came apart at the seams with guilt and with uh, the degrading experience of knowing that she had committed what is really the most heinous thing you can do in your marriage. And I observed the greatest uh, level of repentance I think I've ever seen. Um, not, not just emotional repentance, but life-changing uh, circumstances to make sure that it never happened again. 
I've said nearly the same words to another woman who stared me in the eye and looked like she was trying to stare me into the ground and just seethed. And you could just see the anger because she was caught. And so, so that's the difference right there. I mean, what's the most loving thing you can do for somebody who's in a life-altering sin is to confront it and say, what are you doing? What are you doing to yourself? What are you doing to your family? What are you doing to your children? Why are you, why are you putting sticks of dynamite underneath your life and other people's lives and running a fuse and pushing the little plunger? Why are you doing that? That's the loving thing to do. So <clears throat> is it observable? Is it serious? Is it unrepentant? Um, and that takes, that takes some judgment, takes some, some, uh, some wisdom and some prayer. So the conclusion is understanding the difference between love covers a multitude of sins and turn this one over to Satan, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that takes discernment and it takes some, uh, some decision making. Now, I, wanna, I won't go through this in detail, but I just want to make the point that when somebody says, well, church discipline doesn't have a lot of biblical support, so we're going to be careful with it. That's baloney. That's, that's having an opinion and just deciding not to look. Um, oh, the house isn't on fire. You know, I smell smoke, but that's it. You know, there's, there's nothing else here. Here, I gave you 14, 14 texts um, that speak of church discipline in one way or another, and I'll go through them quickly. Uh, if you're interested in getting detail on this, um, I preached a message a year and a half ago called The Purity of the Church, and this is where this is coming from. Uh, Matthew 18, this is private to public in four steps with the church having disciplinary authority. Um, we treat that person as an unbeliever. It doesn't mean that we shun them. We don't, you know, you see them in the grocery store, you don't turn the other way. It just means that at this point, what we ask you is every interaction you have with that person should lead you right back to the gospel. Hey, you remember that whole thing about having multiple boyfriends? Have you repented of that yet? And, and that you're not going to buddy-buddy with that person. You, you, why would you? That, that makes no sense to do that. Um, but somebody would say, well, Matthew 18 was prior to, to the institution of the church. Well, the next 13 aren't. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, sexual immorality in the church is purged in one step, not four. This particular case was a, a case of incest. And, and the Apostle Paul told the church, get him out now. And no doubt there was a sense of working with that person outside the context of the church. But get him out. He's not to gather with us. He's not to be here. Um, <clears throat> Second Corinthians 2, 6 and 7 speaks of the restoration of the repentant. Many think that that's speaking of the same person in the First Corinthians 5 situation who has repented. And now Paul says, uh, don't overwhelm him with grief and sorrow. If he's repented, get him back. And um, so those two may be related. Galatians 6, 1 speaks of the initial gentle guiding of a brother caught in a transgression. <clears throat> you know what's a great way to confront somebody? Is in a way that they're not even certain that they were confronted. To put your arm around them, parakaleo means to call alongside. It literally means putting your arm around somebody and, and saying, you know, in, in, in my marriage I've noticed that when I raise my voice to my wife, that's not really that effective. What do you think? Oh, okay, because I've seen the way you act with your wife. You don't have to come and punch a guy in the face and say, you know, look, you better get it together. Um, that's step two. I don't want to do that. 
But Galatians 6, 1, the, the initial gentle guiding of a brother. And, and it, that's what we ought to be doing. You know when a church is unhealthy is when nobody's doing that. When there's no sense of... And, and by the way, church discipline happens in these beautiful, subtle ways by being in a small group, by serving, by being on, on service teams, by being here every Sunday. That's, that's discipline, right? If you, if you decide to skip church for two months straight, how do you think your walk with Christ is going to be versus the times when you're here every time the doors are open? Obviously, we understand that. So, so discipline happens as we interact with one another and we call one another to faithfulness. And sometimes that happens um, directly. Ephesians 5.11 speaks of exposing, reproving, and confronting observable sin. Um, and I, I think this is a good place to point out that we're not confronting preferences you must know the difference between a sin and your preference, right? Um, <clears throat> if somebody wears clothing that you think is worldly, whatever that means, um, that's a preference. If somebody wears clothing that is provocative and could be distracting, that is a sin. You see the difference? Um, well, I don't like your clothes. Well, who cares? Uh, that's, you know, uh, somebody asked me, why, why do you wear a suit to church? Well, why don't you? I mean, it's, a, it's my preference. If I were a commentator on ESPN, they would make me wear a suit. I wear a suit because I'm preaching the word of God to the people of God. That's, that's just me. Um, but there's a difference between preference and sin. And so you better know the difference between before you go talk to somebody. Um, you know, what about all these drums in the church? Well, I agree with you. I think we need more of them. <laughs> I mean, we have them on both sides. Uh, do you, because do you think that when you enter into heaven that there's going to be one little guy playing the flute and that's it? I don't think so. First Corinthians 5.14 Admonish the idle. It's a word that means the disorderly, the insubordinate. Who's this aimed at? This is aimed at those who disrespect church leadership. Well, I, I'm not sure I agree with what the elders are doing. A, why are you telling me that's gossip? B, have you talked to them? And C, why don't you just fall in line? They're not asking you to sin. If they're asking you to sin, have a problem with it. If they're not asking you to sin, then just go along with it. Stop being insubordinate. Stop being idle. Uh, what is it, how, how, how does insubordination and being idle go together? I think it's really simple. When you have too much time on your hand to think too much, um, then, you, then you become disorderly. 2 Thessalonians 3 6 through 15, long section here. Basically, in verse 14, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, who is a troublemaker, who is insubordinate. It's the same word as, as 1 Thessalonians 5.14. In other words, somebody who has a pattern of calling into question everything that's happening and, and being that, that difficult person, that eventually you just say, you know what, I just don't really want to hang out with you anymore. Because you drag me down into the depths of the mud, and I think you're actually bad for the church, and you need to do something about that. Uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that leadership shouldn't have an open door policy, and you shouldn't be able to talk and ask questions. But you've all been around that person that doesn't have a motivation of love. They're just they're looking for the demon under behind every door, and and that's not that's not helpful. <clears throat> that is not helpful. I had a church member once um, uh, who asked me. You know, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to get a report of how you use your time every week. I'd like to see your calendar. And um, so I said, no. <laughs> um, 
and, and this person genuinely thought that I should show them my, and, and I said, well, what, why should I show you my calendar? I said, well, because I think you're wasting time. Oh, all right, well, let's see, I'm teaching BTI, I preach twice on Sundays, um, you know, I could, I could give you a report, but it, it, there was no basis to it. It was just, I've sat around thinking about how great it must be to be a pastor. You must play golf five times a week, and you must do this and that. And it was all in this person's mind, and we actually worked it out. And I asked, I asked him, tell me what you think I do all week. What do you think is happening? And it was totally ridiculous. So you know what I eventually did? I showed him my calendar. He never said anything again. He said, oh, okay, I understand. But that was, that was the result of idleness. Because then we turned it around and I said, I know this, you're not in a small group. I know this, that you're not serving. I know this, that you're not here half the time. So show me your calendar. And he said, no. And I said, show me your calendar or leave. Because you're not going to turn this on me without the same accountability. He showed me his calendar. Praise God. You know, uh, <laughs> you're all holding your breath. Oh, what happened? Um, <laughs> But this is, this is dangerous in the church, that idle, that idle troublemaker, the guy who comes in and, and kind of leans against the wall to observe everybody else as if you're not part of the system, as if you're not part of the body. We, we don't need that. That's just, you know, go, go somewhere else if you're going to do that. First uh, Timothy one twenty, doctrinal troublemakers, one step, hand them over to Satan. Hand them over to Satan. There's a difference between teaching two views of a doctrine which is completely legitimate, and teaching something contrary to our doctrinal statement in correction of the, the elders, or in correction of our doctrinal statement. Um, that will, that will uh, I've got Dave Dahl on, on speed dial, is what they used to call it, on my phone, and that will get you out the door. Because you can't do that. You can't do that. Okay, if you teach something in ignorance, oh, I didn't know. Oh, great. Well, let's use that as a discipling moment. Um, but I know the difference. I've been around long enough to know when somebody's correcting the elders, correcting the doctrinal statement. And, okay, look, it's fine if you want to believe something different. You're just not going to teach that here. So you need to go. Um, unless, unless you go back and correct your mistake with all those that you taught. Um, that doesn't usually happen. First Timothy 5. How to handle an accusation against an elder. Don't receive it except with several witnesses. Um, somebody comes to you and says, and this isn't my idea, this is Paul's, and says, you know, I think, uh, I think one of the elders is, is, is doing X, Y, and Z. Well, does anybody else know this? No, nope, just me. Then get away from me. Stop being divisive. You go talk to him if you want, but uh, don't, don't come to me. I don't ever want to hear that again. You have to be responsible to push back. Uh, when you listen to gossip, you are a what? Gossip. Right? It's the same thing. Second uh, Timothy 3.5, you avoid professing believers who are massively worldly. And there's a huge list in Second Timothy 3, first four verses. When you look at somebody's life, they don't even remotely resemble a Christian. And yet they're out there talking about Christ all the time and they want to hang out with you. You say, you know what? I... I'll hang out with you if you let me give you the gospel because I don't think you're a Christian, to be honest with you. It's okay to say that to somebody um, because they're either going to say they're either going to say, "Well, yes, I am," and you say, "Well, then your life doesn't prove it at all," or they're going to say, "Well, what makes you think I might not be a Christian?" And you tell them, but in but basically, you're not to buddy buddy with those guys. Um, Titus three nine through eleven. This is the defiant troublemaker. 
<clears throat> probably less serious than 1 Timothy 1 because in, in Titus 3, you get two warnings and then he's out. Okay, so it's probably a less serious situation. 1 Timothy 1, uh, Alexander and Hymenaeus is being handed over to Satan immediately. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, the call to obey church leadership. The implication is that action happens if that's refused. Um, I, I, I'm not afraid in counseling to say this assignment that I'm giving you is not optional. This is, you need to do this. And, and if you don't show up for the next session or if you're not going to do this, then why are you wasting my time? And this may have to be a bigger discussion. Now, don't let that make you afraid to come to counseling. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that, um, that when somebody who is more mature than you, and this, if you're mentoring somebody, you should have this attitude as well. You should say, if, if I'm going to mentor you, then you're going to do what I ask. That, that's how it ought to be. That's, that's important. Second John 10, don't pretend to be friends with false teachers. Keep them away. Uh, this verse says, don't even eat with them. Don't even have, have dinner. If, if I got a call from Benny Hinn said, I'd like to have dinner with you. I would say yes on one condition, that you come and repent of your ministry and you let me share the gospel with you. Oh, no, no, I just want to hang out. I might be able to help your ministry. No, go eat by yourself. Not going to do it. Um, now, now that that's not going to happen to any of us um, in reality. But the fact is, um, in our social media culture today, <clears throat> you can go online and say, you know, I, I sort of like something that so-and-so is saying. What, what is a false teacher? A false teacher is not somebody you disagree with. A false teacher is somebody who has denigrated the gospel or the trinity or some major aspect of, of our faith. You cannot say, I like anything that T.D. Jakes has ever written. You can't say that. Why? Because he's a modalist. doesn't believe that the Spirit of God and the Son of God are God. You can't, you can't be friends with them. Um, Ron Vietti, our own, our own resident Bakersfield heretic, doesn't believe in the Trinity, doesn't believe the biblical gospel, believes that he is personally capable of, capable of getting people saved. And I don't mind naming his name because I'm not going to be friends with him. I'm going to call him out any chance I have. I've sent him like, I don't know, 10 emails asking to, to talk to him about some of the things that he says about Calvinism. Um, and he doesn't respond because he's above that. So no, we're not going to be friends with them. What, why, what does darkness have in favor with light? What, what do we have together? And then finally, Jude 23 illustrates the seriousness of sin, that we're to save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so there's a, there's a sobriety and a seriousness there. So I just wanted to debunk the myth that church discipline isn't uh, addressed that much in the Bible. I would say it's all over the place. Um, before we move on to the next little part, I know this is, a, I know this is as heavy a topic as there is. Does anybody, A, have a comment or question, or B, a joke? I think we can go either way here. <laughs> comment or question first, though. Yeah. I, I've been in homes a lot as a piano tuner, and so I'm kind of like a hairdresser. And people you know, talk to me, and I notice, I notice what music they have on their piano. That sort of thing. That's so a great joke. We discuss, we discuss this sort of thing, and I meet a lot of people that go to Ron's church, and I, I always graciously bring up the Trinity with them and talk with them. And in almost every instance, they leave the church. Um, Keep going. It is a, yeah. The other day, I did a search, and I was searching one person's webpage that has a very good list of the things he believes with clips. And I did a search, and you, you came up for the first three things on the search. Messages on 
you know, Calvinism versus yep. Ron Vietti. And I, I was, well, tag that, I'm going to read that later. Yeah. You know? But, the, the, uh, you know, if you talk to people graciously, a lot of people that go to that church have no they don't know. concept they're the of victims. Yeah, they're, they're the victims. Uh, it's because they don't have a doctrinal statement. Or if they do, it's like a paragraph. And it's just, it's lame. Um, but, you know, he, he is a heretic. Uh, heretics can uh, repent, by the way. They can come to faith. Um, but he denies the Trinity, denies the biblical gospel, um, runs, the, runs the church like it's his business. Um, all of his associate pastors are related to him, by the way. Um, and, that's, and that's not inherently bad. I mean, Jack MacArthur, his dream was for John MacArthur to be the pastor under him and take over the church that he pastored in Burbank. That didn't work out. That's not inherently bad. It's all about character. Um, but the people there, they're, they're, they're victims. So you don't say, oh, you go to Valley Bible, we're going to, you know, I, I can't talk to you. Do you believe what Ron believes? Yes, everything. Now I can't talk to you. I just don't want to be around that. But most of the time, Ed is exactly right. Really? My pastor doesn't believe that Jesus is God? They, they should know that. Good, good question, good comment. What else? What other questions? Yes, Deb. So, do you have a friend in another church, and they're under church discipline? Do you just try to share the gospel with them, but you just are like that fellowship? Or Pragmatically speaking, uh, and I know people get nervous when we use that word, but pragmatically speaking, um, <clears throat> if somebody says, if somebody actually tells you that you have a friend in another church and they say they're, they're about to discipline me out of the church, most of the time they're going to present the one side that they want to present. And so the, the, the uh, kind thing to do is to say, you need to go submit. You need to go deal with this and to, to kindly push them back to their leadership. Um, and and you need to just kind of stay out of it and just say you need to deal with this with them. Well, they're you know they're unbiblical this and this, so we're, I'm going to come to your church. Um, in this case, you would say I guarantee you our pastor will be calling yours, so your story better check out um, because that will happen. Um, I I went through I went through uh, Google and called every church in one town because I thought somebody was there um, and finally found this person. And just let the pastor know. And they said, well, we don't believe in church discipline. I said, then what you get coming to you is, is on you. You know, my, I've discharged my duty. Uh, I, I think you've got to push them back to their leadership. But probably you're not going to find out. You're going to hear, well, our, our, our church is oppressive. Our church is, you know, weird and this and that. And maybe it is. If it is, then, then they need to get out. That's a, that's a different issue. Anything else on church discipline? Yeah, Ken. Is there... I don't know. That's uh, that's in your heart, you know. Uh, if you if you if you uh, didn't do something, I don't know. That's a sin of, of omission. Um, if it comes to light that you knew something and hid their sin, yeah, I'll lump you right in there. If you're if you're with the guys who go into the Seven Eleven robbing it and you didn't have the gun, you're still arrested, you know. So so yeah. But I mean, again. Boy, love covers a multitude of sins. You know me. That, that's, we're going to preach that all day long. When you get to this point, it, it needs to be super serious where there's going to be catastrophic results in the body. By the way, what often happens during church discipline with church members, this is why it's so serious, why this, the sin is so heinous, what often happens? You have taking sides, right? 
because, and I guarantee you, you never have the whole story. You never do. Um, you don't even have 5% of it. So um, this is why we, we submit to elders and you trust character. Um, I don't say that as an elder. I, say, I would say that if I were a church member alone um, because you never have the whole story. And if, you, if we announce somebody's name, um, I can guarantee you in every single instance this happened since I've been at Grace, uh, there, there was already hours of prayer and a lot of tears. There's a, one time we've announced somebody's name where we didn't all weep our way through that. Um, so it wasn't something arrived at lightly at all. On that heavy topic, um, let's talk about women and men in ministry. I loved Popeye and olive oil growing up, and I just like the picture. It has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. All right, let's let's walk through this, uh, and hopefully we'll finish this part. This isn't complex. Uh, two different views of women and men in ministry. There's the egalitarian view, that there are no distinctions between the roles of men and women in ministry. All functions and positions in church ministry are open to both genders. That is now the majority view in mainline denominations in the United States. Um, and now, <laughs> it gets even, I don't even know what you call this, um, between... Roles of men and women of open to both genders or whatever gender. Yeah, uh, now it's gender X. There are nine states now that on your driver's license, you're either male, female, or X. You know, and, and just want to say, go in the bathroom and find out. I mean, it's not, it doesn't take that long. Um, so egalitarianism says there's no distinction. Basically, there's only one proof that this view has, that in Christ there is neither male nor female right is that the point of those texts that paul says that no he also says there's neither slave nor free and neither uh, jew nor greek oh okay so everybody who's an employee now and you're a christian you go to your boss and you say hey i'm the boss now and you're the employee because in christ there's no there's no slave and there's no master um so we're going to switch roles obviously that doesn't make sense um egalitarianism is born purely out of feminism. That, that's where it comes from. It, it is the idea um, that uh, being a woman as defined by the Bible is somehow a denigrating um, role, which it's not. It, it absolutely isn't. So that's where it comes from, and I won't go into a lot of detail on that. Complementarianism is the view that there are distinctions between roles of men and women in the church and in the home. Now, there's a, there's a spectrum of complementarianism. You have, um, on the one hand, you have church leadership and leadership of all public ministry is exercised uh, by men. Anything that puts a man or men under a woman's authority is not permitted. That is our general practice at Grace Bible Church. We're, we're not going to do that. Um, there's another, uh, if you go a little bit, Farther from that, women are restricted only from the office of pastor or elder, teaching and ruling positions, but other ministries and positions of authority are open to women. Um, we don't generally do that, although we do have women running things, but it's not, it's not to have spiritual authority over men in any way, shape, or form. Um, okay, so if there's a team of people uh, cleaning the church and there happens to be a woman here in charge and she tells a guy, can you go take out the trash? Is that exercising spiritual authority? No, that's just being a brother and sister together. So we don't get too hung up on that. Um, but if if a, a Bible study is happening and a woman in the study decides to 
be overly aggressive in trying to proclaim her viewpoint on something, it is appropriate for the male leader to say, you know what, let's you and I talk about that privately. And that's not going to happen. Um, then you can, you can go to this all the way to women can serve in any role, including preaching to men as long as they're under the authority of men. Um, okay, well, no, you can't do that. Uh, so that, that's just that's semantics at that point. So uh, somebody's already asked me this. At the Sing Conference, Kristen Getty is going to be speaking. Okay, well, are we violating this? It's not the church. It's a bunch of people getting together who happen to love the Lord, and we're going to sing together a lot. And she's going to talk primarily to, to moms about how to teach your kids to sing and to, and to worship. Um, but there's no authority structure. There, that's, the, that's the difference, that she can't discipline you out of the church, right? And you can get up and walk out anytime you want, and that's fine. Um, I like listening to her just because of her accent uh, alone. So uh, this is talking about the local church, which has a structure, has a format, has a leadership, and, and so forth. So obviously we are complementarian. Um, uh, there's another word for complementarian. It's biblical. Uh, that, that works better. And just so we, you know, I, I guess I'm less patient with this the older I get because I, I used to take a real delicate defensive position about, well, uh, you know, I feel bad for you ladies, but this and that. Well, no, this is just what God said. If he said, you know, all teaching pastors are to wear green hats while they preach, then I'm going to wear a green hat. It's just the way it is. And so we, so we just obey the Lord and, and, and do so um, because we love him. That being said, though, <clears throat> uh, I get weary of people saying that, that well, the, the church and the Bible denigrates women and it puts women down. Absolutely not. That's a lie. That is absolutely a lie from hell. Jesus affirmed the worth and the dignity of women. He extended salvation to men and women equally. Women were called to be Jesus' disciples. Women received instruction from Jesus. They were chosen to be the first to witness Jesus' resurrection. Did you catch that? Who got to see him alive first? In the sovereignty of God, he said, I think I'll show myself to the ladies first. Mary Magdalene. Jesus treated women with tenderness and care, and he way went out above and beyond their social customs. Uh, he, was, he was kind and he was tender. He was winsome and gentle with women. I, I mean, uh, guys, if your wife has ever said, why can't you act more like Jesus? That is a legitimate thing to say because he was kind and he was patient. And um, he, he, was, he was so... Um, tender with women. So to say, if anybody says, well, well, Jesus denigrated women. No, absolutely not. In fact, he treated women better than any man who's ever walked this planet. So you can't say that. Would we say then, well, that uh, well, women don't have any place in, in ministry? No, nobody ever says that uh, or that knows what they're talking about. Let me just give you some examples here. Women in ministry in the New Testament. There's 33 references to women in the book of Acts alone. Women are with the disciples when the new apostle uh, was chosen, Acts 1.14. Multitudes of men and women were added to the church, Acts 5.14. 
The very first convert in Europe was a woman, Lydia, and the church at Philippi probably met in her house. Um, she, had a, she had a large house. Women provided houses for church meetings. Uh, I've, I've mentioned that. Women were persecuted for the sake of the gospel, Acts 8, 9, and 22. If they're not actively involved in the life of the church, they're not going to be persecuted. So, so there are great women of faith who have, who have suffered and who have died uh, for the sake of Christ. Um, wives of apostles accompanied their husbands, 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Women are charged with discipling younger women. And that's not somehow a, a secondary role. That's, that's massive because how a, how a woman acts as a woman impacts her whole home and how the home is impacted impacts a man's ministry. It impacts, impacts his life. Um, I have some of the saddest conversations I've ever had are with pastors who have to step out of the ministry because their wife, his wife can't behave herself. That she's just too busy with this or, or just won't invest fully in their home. On the flip side, I've seen, um, these, when I was in seminary, seeing these precious young couples. Uh, my wife got ripped off. She didn't know she was marrying the pastor because I, was, I wasn't a pastor when we got married. But these precious young ladies who marry seminary students, and all they'll ever know is being the pastor's wife. Um, and they come alongside, and some of the older ladies will, will do some teaching at Seminary Wives Fellowship that they have, or discipleship, and, and teach them how to make their husband's ministry two and three times more effective than it could be. Um, so so it, it's, not, it's not an unimportant role. It's huge. It's, it's a major role. Um, I sat in a meeting with a potential missionary, um, and he was, he was getting ready to graduate, and he was going to go overseas. And there was, there was me and a couple of other uh, uh, TMS uh, uh, faculty. And Dr. Keith Essex, who was preaching in our church, was in there. And, and the question was asked, gentlemen, is there anything else that would say that this person is not ready for the gospel ministry? And Keith Essex raised his hand. He said, you need a wife. And he said, I'm not going to sign off on you going off anywhere until you have one, because you need one. And so he went out and found a wife. I don't know how he did it, but he, he did. <laughs> There's no evidence in the entire New Testament that a woman ever served as an elder or overseer. Uh, it's just not there. But women can serve as official servants in the church. First Timothy 3, um, First Timothy 5, First Timothy 3 speaks of uh, and this is a debated issue, but I take the view of the wife of a deacon. Uh, in our church, we see this all the time. Deacons are given something to do. And who the, who's the first person they get to help? Their wives. That makes total sense. Um, 1 Timothy 5, you have the list of older women qualified to serve in the church. Um, not, it's not those qualified to receive help. It's those qualified to serve under male leadership. So it's not, not a big issue. Uh, what is... If the church were to have female pastors and elders in the ministry of Jesus, when would have been an ideal time for him to establish this? Picking his 12, yes. That we would have uh, Matthew and, and uh, we'll have John and we'll have Peter and we'll have James and then we're going to have Sapphira and we're going to have uh, Priscilla Priscilla would have been a good apostle, but she wasn't. She was the husband to Aquila. By the way, Priscilla is almost always listed first because she was probably more effective than her husband. 
and yet she was submissive. She taught Apollos the better way of Christ, but she did it in private. She said, you know, you don't have all the gospel can I show you. So um, to me, this is a non-issue because the Bible's so adamantly clear about this. Um, one last thing, just male leadership in the New Testament. And I think I have a repeat here. Uh, it carried on the Old Testament consistency of men in spiritual leadership. All the apostles were male. Qualification of an elder. And this is open and shut. Husband and one wife. It is literally in Greek a one-woman man. You, you can't get around that word. There's no evidence in the New Testament that a woman has served as an elder. I already said that. Um, there's a prohibition that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man, 1 Timothy 2.12. What's the reason? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Open and shut case. It's the created order. And, and look, this isn't a problem with a woman not wanting to submit to men. That's not the problem. The problem is a woman or any believer not wanting to submit to Christ. And trust me, there are tons of male leaders in the church that are pushing and promoting female leadership. Um, can't do it. Uh, when, you, when you see a church's website that says, Pastors, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, bink, close it. You're done. Because if they don't believe that easy thing to grasp in the Bible, then how are, they, how are you going to believe anything else they say? Um, we just don't go there. So it's, it's, it's all about submission. That's all it is. There, there's no other, no other issue. If you don't like it, you don't get to change it. Um, there is there, there, some, of the, some of the precious women we have in our church that I look up to because of how content and how joyful they are in the Lord. You know what they all have in common? They don't fight authority structures. They have that in common. They, they're, they're joyful um, right where they are. Um, everybody has that issue. You know, I'm, I'm pastoring, a, I think, the greatest church uh, I've ever been a part of. I love this church. But I know guys who are half my age who step into a church of 2,000 people. This is my place. That's their place. I need to let that be okay. I know a guy when he was 22 years old was invited to go speak to a small group of pastors in India. You know how many people he spoke to? 50,000. 50,000 showed up. I interviewed him for an article. I said, what did you do right beforehand? He said, I vomited everywhere. <laughs> That's his place. He, for some reason, God has blessed his particular ministry. He travels all over the world and stadiums fill up when this guy goes. Okay, that's great. We have 160, and we proclaim God's word, and we're happy with that. So it's all about submission. Any questions on male and female leadership?